Thank you very much, Charlene. We are in our new series starting today. Last week we wrapped up our series on the angry God, and we're starting today with the heaven code, trying to find the right code to get in. People ask, how do I, how do I go to heaven? And, and a lot of times as the church, we have presented it this way. We have done tracks and we've done things, you know, are you ready to die? On the day that you die, will you go to heaven? Do you know that when you die, you'll go to heaven? And so we ask about what, is the, what are the steps I need to take? And, and a lot of religions and, and things are framed that way. But even within the church, we, we frame of, are you ready to die? And when you die, and sometimes they even, you know, it's jokingly called fire insurance. But what is, what is the steps I need to take? What's the code? What's, what's the the 12-step the program I need in order to be saved? Is it, I need to pray this prayer. I need to uh, think this thing. I need to do these works, whatever. And the thing is, as, as popular as it isn't even in what I, and I didn't make up this name, but what we call churchianity, of this idea of here's the formula you need to follow, what's really interesting is that the Bible at no time presents it this way. The, whoop, and here we go through. Forget you saw that. No, no previews. <laughs> The Bible never presents it as, here's salvation, it's just about when you die. All right? You don't see Jesus going, are you ready for the judgment day? Now, is that in there? Yes. But as the Bible talks about salvation, it doesn't talk about it in terms of just afterlife or going to heaven someday. It does not present it as just when you die. There are no when you die pitches in the Bible. <clears throat> It includes talking about what's going to happen when we die, but it's bigger than that. The Bible talks about salvation in a very different way than the way we oftentimes do. And so what has oftentimes happened is that we have tried to break it into a formula of go through these steps, do these things, and you'll be saved. Is that what the Bible is teaching in its entirety? Is that what it means? And, you know, spoiler alert, not really. But we want to look at, well, what does the Bible say? What, the, what does Jesus say? What is the truth of what it means to be saved, to go to heaven as we say it? So we're going to, over the next nine weeks, we're going to look through, we're going to spend a lot of time in the Gospels, and we're going to look at what does the Bible really say, and, and maybe challenge some of the things that have been part of our assumptions, but we're not as biblical as maybe we realize. <coughs> Sorry, I had something go down the wrong way. But are what Jesus was teaching about what it means to come to him. So turn to Matthew 19 if you haven't already done it. And I'm not going to reread it. Charlene did a great job reading it. But let's go through and we're going to call attention to some of the things we saw in there. And then we'll unpack it and talk about how we react to it. The, the whole story here of Jesus' interaction with this, oftentimes we call this the rich young ruler or the rich young man. Uh, I didn't know this, so I'm guessing most of you didn't know this either, but in, in the literature of the time, uh, because obviously this is the Greek and Roman Empire, and so we've got a lot of stuff from them, a lot of their uh, literature has survived, and a lot of the teaching has survived, and the idea of a spoiled rich kid, young adult rich kid, spoiled, is common, all right? This is common in the Greek literature, because their society in some ways was a little bit like ours now. The, the empire was a mature empire. So you had like a middle class and an upper class, and you had people who are now who are young men who are well off. Maybe they inherited it or whatever, but they, they're well off and they're young and they're kind of spoiled. And so this motif, this idea of a spoiled rich young man is, is common in the literature. And here Jesus encounters one of these men. 
Now, when he encounters them and the guy says, you know, hey, what do I need to do? What, are the, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And Jesus answers and says, why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Now, this first question right off the bat is Jesus beginning to try to clue this young man in on what he needs to know. And all the way through here, you're going to see Jesus almost kind of knocking on his forehead, trying to wake him up to what the reality of his situation is. It's not going to go well because this young man is going to fundamentally not go where Jesus is trying to bring him. But Jesus starts by asking a very fundamental question that goes right over the guy's head. He goes, well, why do you bring up good? Why did you call me good? Only God is good. And that should right off have alerted the guy that something's gone wrong in his own life because he said, what good thing do I need to do? And as we're going to see in the conversation, he believes he's already well on his way. He sees himself as a good person. And we'll see in a minute just how good he's been. I think we would look at this young man and go, he's a good guy. He has all the marks of being good. But God, Jesus starts the conversation by going, you do understand that nobody's good but God, right? Nope, he doesn't. No, that question, right, right past him. But God starts, Jesus starts with this first clue, trying to clue him in about his own goodness, that he doesn't have it. But he says... But Jesus says, so then Jesus, and Jesus knows that first pitch went wide, so he says, there is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And now just a quick note, if you notice these, these are the verifiable other commands. So out of the Ten Commandments, and then love your neighbor as yourself is the catch-all that said that that contains all the others. But notice the ones that Jesus doesn't mention. He doesn't mention the ones towards God, number one, two, three, and four, which are God word rather than other word. And he doesn't mention ten. Why? Because ten is not verifiable. I can pay attention to you honor your father and mother. Have you killed anyone? Do you lie? Do you covet? I don't know. I can't tell. So Jesus doesn't, he says, basically, he gives them the, the good kid list, the ones that you can tell. The ones that a good kid's going to do. He doesn't give them the ones that nobody can tell. He's emphasizing the kid, the, the kid, I call him a kid, he's a young man. He's emphasizing his behavior. Have you been good? The things that everybody can see. And he's like, oh, nailed it. Since I was a kid, I've been awesome. What am I missing? What am I missing? And Jesus says, if you wish to be complete, some translations say perfect, the idea is finished. Remember, when you see perfect in a biblical translation, it usually doesn't mean without flaw, it means uh, completely finished, complete, finished. He says, well, then there's one thing you lack. And this is where I think the young man and us start misunderstanding Jesus. Because we hear one thing you lack, and we're like, oh, so he's real close. So imagine you made bread. And in making bread, you only left out one ingredient. You got every ingredient right. You took every step right. The only thing you left out was the flour. <laughs> and we would go, wow, you were almost there. No. You weren't there at all. Like, it's not even bread-like. You know? 
you don't have bread. It's not like, well, it's almost bread. No, no. You left out one thing. What did you leave out? The thing. And when Jesus says one thing you lack, he's, Jesus isn't going, oh, you're this close. He's like, uh, you just missed the one thing. What's the one thing? The only thing. Yeah. One thing you lack. Now, this one's fun. Verse 23 and 24. After the guy goes away, because he's not willing to give up his stuff, Jesus says, I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. This is, there's no extra charge for this, but just a quick note. If you've ever heard, well, you know, they have this ancient gate, and then the, the camel, there was a small gate that people could go through, but trying to get a camel through it would have been really hard. No. There is questionable evidence whether that's even true ever. But if such a gate existed, it was brought in and implemented during the Middle Ages, by which time Jesus is, this is way after this. So that's a wonderful picture. No, it's not a gate. So when Jesus talked about the needle and the camel going through that needle, he's not talking about a gate. So if you've heard that, I've heard that, I was like, I wonder if that's true. Looked it up. Nope. Multiple sources. They all said, either that gate never existed or if it was from the Middle Ages. Not, Jesus is not referencing a gate. He's, liter he's using the metaphor the way we understand it. A needle, a camel. You can't fit it. He's saying this is impossible, humanly speaking. That's, it's just, it's what, it's, it reads it the way you don't have to play with it. All right? He means hard to do. What does he say? Impossible with people. This is impossible. Because the disciples hear this and they're like, whoa. They don't go, wow, that's really hard. Which if it was a camel and a gate, well, you know, with a little bit of work, maybe. The camel's not going to enjoy it. The gate's not going to enjoy it. They get there. But the disciples are like, well, then nobody can get saved. Just like, yeah, not on their own. No. What, it, what does it say? But God can do it. He's describing salvation. It's impossible for man, but possible for God. And then we get to Peter. And Peter is one of my favorite characters. Because Peter's the guy who gets both feet stuck in his mouth and wonders why he's having trouble walking. I mean, he sort of gets it, but he doesn't quite get it, and yet he's got the supreme overconfidence of incompetence, and so he just charges forward. So he, remember, they've been sitting and watching this whole thing. And, they got, you know, and remember, these guys are figuring out who Jesus is too. Remember, they don't get it completely right until after the resurrection. So don't read the disciples as if they've got it all figured out, because we know they don't either. But they're trying real hard. So they're listening to this, and he came up and said, what do I need to be saved? And they're like, okay, I think I know this one, but let's listen. And they listen, and he says, give up all you have, and come follow me. And the guy walks away, and she's like, yeah, it's hard for people to give up all they have. And Peter goes, but we did! We gave up everything! And Jesus says, well... What will there be for us? Then he says, what will there be for us? Now, I really don't think that he's saying, so what are we going to get? Like, we gave up everything, now what? I think what he means is, what's our reward? We've done good. What do we get? What do we win? What do we get? We got it right. You just told him to do that. We did that. And Jesus says, I tell you, I, he goes, honestly, when you say, truly, I say to you, that's Jesus going, Honestly, you who followed me, now notice what Jesus says. You who have given up everything. That's not what he says, does it? Jesus does not focus on what they gave up first and foremost. He says, you who have 
followed me. Because that was the important part of what he said to the kid, the, the young man. That's what happens, you get older, right? Suddenly everybody's younger. I never called him a kid when I was 20. Oh. He says, one thing you like, give up everything and follow me. And the young man focused on the give up everything and did not follow him. And Peter does the same thing, but we gave up everything. And Jesus says, yes, and you, you who followed me. Jesus focuses on the follow. In the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also will sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Another quick note. You read judge, you think white robe and gavel. Oh, we're going to judge the, they're going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And you're like, order in the court. Remember what a judgment to Israel. Samuel, Samson. A judge was a military leader who led the people. That's what, when he says you're going to be a judge of Israel, they wouldn't have thought courtroom, you good, you bad. They would have thought leader of people, guiding people in the way of Jesus. And he says, you'll do that for Israel. So don't, don't picture courtroom judge. That's your American culture. But a, a Hebrew judge was a leader of people. Samuel's a perfect example. He's the last judge. All right, just a little note there. Um, but then what does Jesus promise? He says, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and, and will inherit eternal life. He says, so yeah, there, you, will, you will get more than you've lost. There will be this whole new life for you. But it's because you followed me. Now, you say we stopped at verse 29. Ira, there's one more verse in the chapter. Verse 30 should really be chapter 20, verse 1. It goes in the next section. That's why we're not reading it. Uh, chapter, verse 30 is part of the next section. And I'm, I'm not going to take you through why that is today, but it's very clearly... Um, it fits, but it's, he's actually now transitioning in that next verse, and we're not going to cover that today. All right, so the big question is, that was asked, what must I do? I call this the code question, because that's what people are asking. They walk into churches, whether it's a Christian church or a church of another religion or whatever, but when they approach religion, God, they're asking, what do I need to do? How do I connect to God? How do I get whatever the spiritual need I have fulfilled? The biggest one being, will I be okay after now? you know, after I die. And again, we have oftentimes played into this code question. You know, we have tracks that say, are you ready to die? Are you ready when you die? And we, we focus on the afterlife rather than the life now. Um, what must I do? Now notice what his, the young man, the questioner's answer was, was to do good things and to be good. That's what he'd been following. That's what he'd been doing. And Jesus sets him up to try to show that that's an incomplete answer. First by saying, what is, who's, who's good anyway? Only God's good. And that right over his head. And so then Jesus says, well, have you kept these, the good commands, like the visible commands? Have you been a good person visibly and, and dem demonstratively? And he's like, yeah, since I was a kid. He says, okay, well, that's not enough. Why? Because there is no goodness. And that's Jesus' answer. He says, good's not possible. Come follow me. And now a couple notes that you might not have caught because we missed this. Because this guy, I mean, if this guy walked into church, we'd like this guy. We'd say, I know Christians who need to follow this young man's example because he doesn't, he doesn't do all the things that you're not supposed to do. He, 
He doesn't lie, and he doesn't steal, and he doesn't murder, and he doesn't commit adultery. He's pure. He's, oh, he, I mean, he's nailing it. And what is he not doing? Following Jesus. Because doing all those good things was not equal to following Jesus. And he's aware, I'm missing something. He's like, yeah, you're missing what? The only thing, which is following Jesus. Good acts of obedience did not equal following Jesus. And that's tricky because we do that a lot. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Do good acts of obedience. And that's why I think sometimes people have really wondered because they say, and I know I've seen, I've had family members who say, I can be good without him. And then we go, well, but you can't truly be good. No, you, people routinely pull it off. You can be an exceptionally good person without Jesus. This guy was doing it. And when we equate being good with following Jesus, it confuses people because they're like, well, I'm being good. I'm doing what you told me to do. And I didn't even need Jesus to do it. And this young man's one of those. And Jesus is like, yeah, you're missing something. What? The only thing. Follow me. You say, well, wait, wait, wait. Ira, you're leaving part of the story out. I mean, that sounds all good and all, but what about the money? Well, the money was important too, but what was important about the money? It was in his way. It was what prevented him from following Jesus. Notice what it didn't prevent him from doing. Being good. He, was, he had a pile of money, and he was doing good. He was keeping the commandments, at least the outwardly visible one. In fact, you could argue the money might be helpful. You can be more generous. Look at all the good I can do with my money. And so the money was not in his way of being a good person, but it was fatally in his way of following Jesus. Now, in the other account, I think it's Mark, but don't quote me, but in the other account, the other gospel account that also has this story, the very next story is the story of Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus is not asked to give away all his money. Why? Because the money for Zacchaeus is not what's in his way. Zacchaeus has different issues. And Jesus is identifying, what is the, what is the key? Follow me. What is the problem? You're following something else. And Jesus refers to this in his answer to Peter. Because other places he said, man, there's all kinds of things you can follow that are good things. But no one can serve two masters. And for this young man, the money was the master. He didn't want to live without it. And so Jesus makes a very simple, so it did not prevent him from doing good. Sorry, I fell behind on my notes again. It did not prevent him from doing good. The money prevented him from following Jesus, but not from doing good. But Jesus makes a very simple, observable, real point. When he talks about it's harder for a camel through the eye of the needle than a rich man. There's nothing particularly profound or mysterious about this. It's just a real referable point. He says, the more you have, the harder it is to surrender. Why? Because the more you have, the more it has you. And it becomes your master. And in this day and age, there's a lot of different things that may be your master. Because it's the, what is the thing that you don't want to give up? The one thing that would keep you from following Jesus. And those can be good things. Jesus said, if you love father and mother more than me, you can't follow me. Because that's your master. Now think about a society, it's not really our American society so much, but in some societies, even into this day's world, where family honor 
is vital. Your identity is wrapped up in your family. And you have to honor your ancestors. And yet, maybe you're Buddhist. And that's all wrapped up in your family identity. And then you're going to come to Jesus, and so you're not going to worship the ancestors. And you're not going to honor the shrines. And so coming to Jesus, you will have to abandon not just a belief system, but your way of life. And the family is going to disown you for your hatred towards it. Because how could you turn your back on all your ancestors? And that's hard emotionally because I'm attached to this. This is how I, this is important to me. I was raised this way. He says, but if that's more important to you than following me, you can't follow me. And for this young man, it was the money. He has a lot of property. He's in, pardon the pun, but he's invested in it. And to, and to give that up, he can't fathom it. In our Western society now, one of the biggest ways that this is going to get in the way of people is their identity. How do you identify? This is who I am. And say, but what if God asked you to give that up? Which you're actually going to. Why? I, I would never give this up. This is central to who I am. It's in your way. It's in your way. And Jesus said, because of this very real point, the more you have, the harder it is to surrender. And he says, in fact, it's so hard, it's like nigh impossible. Only with God can you bridge that gap because it's so hard to let go of what you've been holding on to. And that's what we witness to this day, right? People won't give it up. Whatever it is, they won't give it up. They'll rather change their beliefs about God than give up something that they've been called to give up. Now, we need to make a really important point here with this, and this is the other part. Sacrifice versus surrender. Giving all the money away was not an act of sacrifice to gain anything. Jesus didn't say, if you want to earn eternal life, give up all your money. And if the young man had given up all his money, that that would have gotten him brownie points with God. And then God would be like, oh, wow, good job. Here's some salvation. And a lot of times we kind of picture it that way. Like, look, and that's what, and that's Peter. Peter's going, well, you must be really proud of us because we're really good by your definition, God. You said give things up. That's us. God's like, nope. Because Peter's missed the first lesson, which was, why do you call me good? No one's good but God. Doing these things didn't cause you to become good because, let's say it again, no one's good but God. <laughs> there is none that is righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to our own way. But Peter's like, well, but we... <laughs> You must be so proud of us, God. And Jesus is like, yeah, Peter. I love J Jesus' patience with Peter because it gives me hope. So it's not an act of sacrifice. It's an act of surrender. Because surrender is how you follow Jesus. Surrender does not earn you anything. It is just describing what coming to Jesus looks like. And that's what Jesus said. He talked, about, he talked about money elsewhere. What did he say? You cannot serve God and wealth. You can't serve a second master. You'll have to pick one. 
And whatever one you pick, the other one will be distasteful to you. The act of following anything means not following anything else. And so surrender means I surrender following anything else. It's not how I earn it, but it is how I receive it. It's what it means to receive it. To say, I will receive this as opposed to leaning on, depending on, serving anything else. We want to do acts. We want actions. Tell me what I need to do. Give me some good things to do so I can say, look at me, I did it. Peter's like, we, we did it. And she's like, no, you didn't do it. I'm still your salvation. Yes, you left everything. That's great. I'm going to reward that. But that's not how you get there. It's by following me and I'm going to take you there. I am the agent of your salvation. We are never the agents of our own salvation. I don't care how much you sacrifice. No sacrifice. Because who's the sacrifice? We just learned this, right, in the last series? The sacrifice points to Jesus. He is the only sacrifice. He is the full and final sacrifice. He is the complete sacrifice. And he's done. The sacrifice has been offered. It's done. There is now no more sacrifice. So you can give up everything, and God's not like, wow, I'm impressed. Because he's like, no, you are satisfied in my eyes through the sacrifice of Jesus, not through the sacrifice of yourself. And so even here, where he calls this guy to give up his money, he's not demanding a sacrifice. He is just telling the guy, here's how you're going to follow me. You've got to stop following the money. Because you are too invested in the money, and you need to be invested in me, because I am salvation. That's what you're missing. Good kid, sure but it doesn't matter. So Jesus, God, doesn't demand a sacrifice from us because he is the sacrifice. Jesus instead asks for our surrender because following him requires surrender. Because otherwise you just won't follow him. He told you that. You'll follow whatever else is more important to you. This young man wanted to follow Jesus. He's a tragic tale. He came to Jesus. He wanted to follow, but not more than he wanted to follow some other things. He was hoping he could add Jesus into the mix, hoping he could, you know, do this and Jesus. And there is no and. And so our first clue as we unlock the heaven code is following him requires surrender. He does not require surrender in the terms of he won't accept you if you don't surrender. You can't accept him if you don't surrender. He told you that. You will hate me if you don't surrender everything else. And that's why I said if you love the world, you're hating me. Why? Because you won't, you'll, you'll ha at some point you'll get to the point of having to pick. And you'll pick the other thing you love if you haven't surrendered to Jesus. And so the last question we ask for today is, what's in your way? For this guy, it was his money. For Zacchaeus, it was something else. And Zacchaeus gave it up. I think for Zacchaeus, it was his status. He was a little man who had learned how to be a big man. And after Jesus visits, he says, I've been cheating people, and I'll pay it all back. Up, and he gave away half his money. And Jesus said, salvation's come today. Why? Because Zacchaeus gave up what was in his way, what he'd been holding on to for himself. And yet this guy said, I, I, can't, I can't surrender. 
what's in your way? What would be the thing? If there is anything in your life, and it may be a good thing, you may say, well, there's nothing wrong with it. That doesn't matter. But if there is something that if Jesus came to you and said, would you give this up? You'd like, well, not that. That's too crucial to my identity. That's in your way. And he's not demanding it because he wants to rip it from you. But he doesn't want it to kill you. And if you choose it over him, it'll kill you because you're passing up eternal life. So what's in your way? What's the thing that if, if he asked you to give it up, you wouldn't? Because he is. He's begging you to give it up out of his love for you. What's in your way? Let's pray. Father, thank you for just the truth of your word and the clarity with which you speak. Sometimes we, we get so caught up in ourselves. We get so caught up in trying to, to follow religion and, and make ourselves good through acts of righteousness when even our righteousness is but filthy rags. Lord, we are not capable of being righteous. We instead have to be justified, made righteous by your blood, by your sacrifice, by your finished work on the cross. But Lord, that is tough on our ego and we want to do a few good works and follow our own way and just keep you in our back pocket for a rainy day. And yet, Lord, you love us and you have called us to a whole different way of life. It starts now. It starts today. But we have to give up these other things that we're gripping hold of. And that is a hard thing. Lord, reveal to our own hearts the things that we may have put ahead of you. Good things. Maybe even beautiful things. Important things like family or job or country but things that we cannot serve instead of you. We cannot serve with you because we cannot serve two masters. Reveal to us ways that we need to surrender and then help our hearts because it is impossible without you. But with you, it is, a po it is possible. And we know that you have promised us that if we embrace you, even at the loss of everything else, that it will be worth it. We will be glad we did in the long run. So Lord, just deal with our own hearts. May we come to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.